Philippians chapter 3 will be our text, and uh, specifically verses 10 through 16. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nevertheless writing his own thoughts, which were guided by the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. You probably noticed as I read those verses that Paul uses athletic imagery to describe how he lived the Christian life. It's not at all uncommon to see that kind of analogy used in the Scripture. There are many places where the analogy of running or wrestling or boxing or fighting, warfare or athletic competition is used to describe the Christian life. I want us to look at a few of those examples by way of introduction to our text here in Philippians 3. So turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Back to the left, a few letters to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> and notice Paul's description beginning in verse 24. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it or win it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Just as in Philippians chapter 3, here Paul is very personal in tone. Five times in verses 26 and 27, Paul uses the personal pronoun I as he describes the Christian life as a race and as a boxing match. And he says here in this text, listen, when I fight, I don't just beat the air. I don't just shadow box. I'm, by, I'm, I'm fighting a real enemy. And in this case, he says the enemy is himself. That's why he says in verse 27, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. I make my body do what it doesn't always want to do or, or make my body not do what it wants to do so that I don't, don't end up becoming disqualified from the reward I could have otherwise received. 
For another example of this kind of imagery, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn to the right past Philippians where we will be camping, but over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a charge from Paul to Timothy. Paul, as the elder statesman, is, is charging his young son in the faith, and he is giving him instructions, and it's sort of like a general charging his soldier, one of his soldiers. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, here's the contrast, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. He's not telling them, you know, grab it so you can achieve it or earn it. You have it. Now just hold, hold on to it in the sense of make it, make it your focus. Grab hold of it or let it grab hold of you, that reality. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In this charge to Timothy, once again, Paul uses the picture of a race and a wrestling match to describe what it's going to take to be effective in the Christian life and effective in ministry. For another example or a few examples, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The next letter, 2 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Here Paul uses several analogies. He talks about a soldier. He talks about an athlete. He talks about a hardworking farmer. All of those are, are dripping with intensity. Because a soldier has to give and give and give and train. An athlete has to train and train and sacrifice. A farmer has to get up early and stay up late. It's hard work. And so Paul's, um, Paul's picture of the Christian life and of Christian ministry, again, is one of great effort. And then look at chapter 4 of this same letter, how he described his own life, his own battle. Some of his final words are recorded in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. As Paul looked back over his life in retrospect, he saw it as a fight and he saw it as a race. One more example, Hebrews chapter 12. Just keep turning to the right to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Familiar words to many, the first couple verses of Hebrews 12. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance 
The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here, the writer of Hebrews describes the Christian life like a race. And it's fascinating to note the specific term that he chose to use because when he says we are to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, he uses the Greek word agona, from which we get our English word agony. And what that tells us is that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. There are some Christians who start well, but they don't finish well. They start well, but they don't end well. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, the Christian life is is an agona. It is a marathon. So you run with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is the kind of imagery, whether you're talking about 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Hebrews 12, this is the kind of imagery behind our text in Philippians chapter 3, and actually that text may be the most intense of all of them. So let's go back there and consider it together, back to Philippians chapter 3. To give us a running start and to remind you on what has led up to this text that we're going to be considering this morning, Back up in your mind with me to verses 4 through 9. Because in verses 4 through 9, Paul stated that he was more than willing. He was was very willing to trash all his own credentials for the riches of Christ. In comparison to the riches of Christ, he came to see his own achievements and his own merit as manure. That's the word he uses, skubalon in the Greek. It could be translated garbage, trash, manure, dung. Paul is saying, when I look at all of those things that he lists in the early verses of chapter 3, where he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He says, when I look at all those things and I compare them to the riches of Christ, it's dung. It's garbage. It's trash. Why would Paul use such a strong term? Especially in light of the fact that some of those things were good things. I mean, to be Jewish was a good thing because you were in the community of faith where you had exposure to the Word of God. So why would Paul look at good things and call them manure? Because he realized that if you hold on to those things for your salvation, it will damn you. Anything that's good. Baptism is a good thing. Church membership is a good thing. But if you hold on to baptism and church membership for your salvation, it will damn you. So Paul made an exchange. He says in the early verses of chapter 3, he made an exchange. And here he begins to use business terminology or accounting terminology. He said he took everything out of his profit column and transferred it to his loss column And in its place, he put one thing, or maybe two, depending on how you divide them up. He put knowing Christ. Knowing Christ, which results in receiving the righteousness of Christ. He came to know Christ, and he received the righteousness of Christ. And that was just the beginning for Paul. It didn't stop there. Paul rightly saw conversion or salvation as just the beginning, not the end. Oh, beloved, it's so important that we understand that. Salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. It's so easy to get complacent once God has saved you. It's so easy to get comfortable and apathetic 
because your eternal destiny is taken care of and you know that your salvation is secure, but that's the wrong attitude. Or it's so easy to be satisfied once someone you've been praying for and working with comes to faith in Christ. But again, that's not the end result we're after. That is not the end. It's only the beginning. Paul understood that. So in verses 10 through 16, he describes his ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very likely that Paul wrote these words to silence any accusations that may have been made by the Judaizers to the effect that the gospel of grace takes away any motivation for righteous living. Maybe you've heard the same accusation. You've talked to people who say, well, you believe that You know, once you trust Christ, you are totally forgiven, completely forgiven, justified, declared righteous, secure in Christ. If you believe that, then that just takes away any motive for righteous living. You're you're basically telling people, live any way you want to. Well, it's very likely that the Judaizers were accusing Paul of that. If that was the case, Paul in this passage demonstrates just the opposite. The gospel of grace doesn't remove motivation for righteous living. On the contrary, the gospel of grace provides the highest motivation for righteous living there could possibly be. But we don't strive to live a righteous life to gain merit or favor with God. That's the difference. We strive to live a righteous life out of love for God and a passionate desire to bring glory to Christ who has saved us. And the exciting thing about it is that we know that one day we will be like Christ, so that keeps us encouraged to keep pursuing the goal of Christ's likeness. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. He said, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in himself or in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, beloved, the gospel of grace motivates us to keep pressing on. The promise of certain glorification motivates us to keep pressing on. Just as a side note, this passage here in Philippians 3 strikes a crushing blow to the doctrine known as perfectionism. Perfectionism is the teaching which says, through a second work of grace... You can become sinlessly perfect. But Paul, probably the greatest Christian ever to live, confesses here in this passage that he had not arrived even though he had been pursuing Christ-likeness and pursuing sanctification for 30 years. And therein, I believe, is one of the keys to spiritual growth. Spiritual growth begins with the awareness that you haven't arrived. There is still a lot more that you need to learn scripturally. There is still a lot more that you need to to learn to practice in the area of sanctification. There are still areas of your life that need to be changed. Oh, blessed discontentment that propels us to spiritual growth. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let me tell you, Paul hungered and thirsted after more. 
Paul always hungered and thirsted for more. Let's see how he describes that here in this tremendous text, beginning in verse 10. Notice the first thing he says, verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. Back in verse 8, Paul said that he had come to know Christ. So what does he mean here? He knows Christ. He already acknowledges he knows Christ. Yes, here's the point. He knew Christ as his Lord and Savior, but he wanted to know him more thoroughly. He wanted to know him more intimately. He wanted to know him more deeply. That's what he's describing here in verse 10. Paul understood that when we come to know Christ, that's not the end. That begins a relationship in which we continue growing in our knowledge of him. At salvation, at conversion, our knowledge of Christ is shallow. And even after a while, our knowledge of Christ is shallow. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Now I only know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Paul realized that his knowledge of Christ, his knowing Christ, was by no means complete. So he says here in verse 10, That I may know him This reminds me of what the psalmist said in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, David wrote, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water to see your power and your glory. In Exodus thirty-three thirteen, Moses said, Now therefore I pray, he's talking to the Lord, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. What are you talking about, Moses? You know God. You met God at the burning bush. You talked with him. Yes, Moses knew God. But he wanted to know him more intimately, more thoroughly, more deeply. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 10 when he says that I may know him. And then he says in the next phrase, and the power of his resurrection. Paul had experienced the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and knocked him flat on his face and then basically raised him to newness of life. But Paul wanted more. He wanted more of that resurrection power in his life. He not only wanted it in his life, he wanted it in the lives of other believers that were his friends and companions and associates. He prayed this for them. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to the previous letter to Ephesians, the letter just prior to Philippians, Ephesians chapter 1. And notice we're going to look at two prayers that Paul prays here in Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 verse 15 He says, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in knowing him. I'm praying that you'll know him. Well, he just said, ever since you placed faith in Christ, I prayed this, so they already knew him. But Paul's praying that they would know him more. And and as a result, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being lightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, 
what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prayed for a deeper knowledge and a more, more experiencing of Christ's resurrection power. And then in chapter 3, he prays a very similar prayer. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. Paul wanted believers to be strong, and he, he knew that that strength comes from the power of Christ's resurrection. So Paul prayed this for other believers, and he not only prayed this for other believers, he wanted that same power in his own life. Paul wanted to experience more of that resurrection power every day of his life as he conquered sin and grew in Christ's likeness. But he knew that to do that would probably involve suffering. So if you go back to Philippians 3, you'll notice there in verse 10 that the next phrase in verse 10 is this, and this is the part we don't want to read. It's the part we don't like. We wish this weren't here. Because the next phrase says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We've covered this many times in the past, but I'll say it again. One of God's most effective methods of sanctifying us is to use suffering in our lives. That's why the pages of the New Testament are filled with passages about suffering and trials and hard times. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have tribulation. Suffering refines us. So if we want to experience the resurrection power of Christ conforming us to his image, then we, we better count on suffering. Then the last phrase in verse 10 is this, being conformed to his death. Paul seems to be saying, I want to become like Christ in his death because he passed through death into new life. And that's what I want to experience in my life in an ongoing fashion. This is just another way for Paul to express his desire for growth and progress. Paul wanted to be conformed to Christ's death. In his death, the Lord Jesus exemplified selflessness, total obedience to the Father. Paul has already taught that back in chapter 2, verses 7, eight, seven and 8. And here Paul is saying, that's what I want in my life. I want that kind of selflessness. I want that kind of complete perfect obedience to the Father. Now, he knew he couldn't attain perfection in this life, but let me tell you something. He still reached for it. He still reached for it. Look at what he says in verse 11. If by any means, if by any means, whatever it takes, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a difficult expression to interpret, very difficult. I, I consulted about 13 different helps, commentaries to research this, and the views are really all over the place. Let me give you my opinion, which I didn't find in any of the commentaries I consulted, so that should make you nervous, all right? <laughs> but since the context is dealing with spiritual growth and maturity and perfection, I believe that Paul is saying here, 
that he is giving his all to the task of sanctification with the goal of achieving what will be done for him at the resurrection. In other words, Paul knows that at the resurrection, when the Lord descends from heaven with the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first, and we are alive and remain, are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. At that event, Paul knew that once that took place, he would be perfect. He would be glorified. But what he's saying here in verse 11 is, I'm not just sitting back and waiting for it to happen. I'm not just saying, hey, I know that's going to happen someday, so you know, no need to get all worked up. Just chill, and it'll come when it comes. No. No, what he's saying is that he was making all the spiritual progress he could make, even to the point of trying to attain to the perfect condition he'll have once he's resurrected. Of course, he knows that he'll never completely attain that status in this life, that goal, but, but he gave it his all. And that leads to a statement in verse 12, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. As a side note, the way Paul parallels attained and perfected here in this verse Notice he parallels them. That is what led me to believe that what he's saying in verse 11 is that he was striving for the perfection that he knew would eventually come at the resurrection. But here he says he hadn't reached it. Even after 30 years of spiritual growth, Paul said, not that I've already attained. There's always, there's always room for more growth in holiness. That's why 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what Paul is describing here in verse 12 when he says, I press on that I may lay hold of it. There's no passivity in that statement. Paul gave maximum effort He wasn't content with where he was at in his spiritual progress. He wanted more, more, always wanted more. Alec Matier writes this, and I quote, No obsessive hatred ever dogged the heels of its adversary with more tenacity than the Apostle Paul held to the target of Christian perfection, end quote. It's sad how many Christians are satisfied with their spiritual progress. They're just content to limp along spiritually. Once they've had their Sunday morning sermon, they've learned enough for the week, been challenged enough for the week, and they want no more exposure to Scripture. That kind of complacency was nauseating to Paul. He had what Dr. Warren Wiersbe has called a sanctified dissatisfaction. I love that phrase, a sanctified dissatisfaction. As I said earlier, in one sense, that is the starting point for spiritual growth. Paul pressed on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of him. In other words, Paul was pursuing that for which Christ pursued him. And by the way, I hope you realize that if you're a Christian, it is because Christ pursued you. Right? I mean, Romans 3 says there's none who seeks after God. If you're a Christian, it's because Christ pursued you. And why does he pursue us? 
Why does he save us? Well, we don't have to guess because Scripture tells us Christ lays hold of us to make us like himself. Romans 8.29 says God's purpose in saving us is to make us like Christ. So Paul is saying here in verse 12, I am giving maximum effort to be like Christ since that's the purpose for which he laid hold of me. And he never lost his focus. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Any athlete knows that it's easy to get distracted away from your goal. Paul would never let that happen. For 30 years, the number one issue in his life was spiritual growth. Can you say that? Can I say that? For 30 years, the number one issue in his life was spiritual growth. Paul was one-dimensional in his passion. He just wanted to be like Christ. That was the one thing that dominated his life. James 1.8 says, The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, let me tell you something. Paul wasn't a double-minded man. He pursued one thing. But I want you to notice that this one thing has two sides to it, or two aspects to it. There's a negative and there's a positive. It's like a coin, two sides. One coin, two sides to it. First, he says, here's one side, forgetting those things which are behind. If you want to run the race successfully, then you have to forget the past, good and bad. The race is out in front of you. It's not behind you. So don't hold on to to the past good or the past bad. If you hold on to good, if you hold on to past good, then the tendency is to just coast on past victories. Listen, if anyone could have coasted, it would have been Paul. It It would have been so easy for him to look back to all that God had accomplished through him, all that God had done in him over the past 30 years, and to just check out of the present race. I see this sometimes among some saints. They, they will sit back and say, I remember the good old days when we used to do such and such. Now, there's nothing wrong with fond memories of the past, but the focus is on the race right now. Don't feel like you've earned the right to retire from the Christian life. You haven't. If you focus on the past good, you're going to get behind in the race. Self-satisfaction. Hear this. Self-satisfaction is deadly to spiritual progress. So don't hold on to the past, even if it's good. If you do, you'll slow the pace. But then there's the other side of the coin. If you hold on to the bad, it will paralyze you. So many Christians, I, I just, it's just my heart breaks over this because I see it so often. Many Christians are debilitated by sins of the past, failures of the past, past hurts, past grudges. Beloved, let go of all that. Let go of all that. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. That's the way Paul lived his life. Think about it. He could have let his past completely debilitate him, paralyze him, 
After all, he had murdered Christians. I often have thought about what it would have been like for Paul after he had been a believer for a while to come to a greeting of Christians, some kind of thing, whether in the synagogue or you know, in a home, in a ch- home church or whatever, and Paul comes in and there sitting in the room is a lady who is a widow because Paul murdered her husband. Can you imagine that? He consented to the stoning of the very first Christian martyr, the beloved Stephen. The guilt of all of that had to be overwhelming to Paul. But he knew that by the grace of God he was forgiven and that God wanted him to forget the past and reach forward to the future. So that's the way he lived He kept charging ahead, moving ahead. He always wanted to learn more, grow more, practice more, live more. He was never satisfied because he knew that the goal is Christ-likeness. And this was his passion. This was his desire. It was not only his desire for himself. This was his desire for others. In Galatians 4.19, he said, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. That was Paul's desire. And so he says in verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward the goal. I bear down on the goal. I reach for the goal of the upward call. Again, that seems to be a synonym for glorification, perfection, this upward call when the Lord descends from heaven and the dead in Christ rise first and we are alive and remain are caught up together with him, that upward call. And so Paul is saying, listen, I bear down on the goal of perfection. That was Paul's focus. That was his pursuit. That was his aim. That's why he never got self-satisfied or complacent. He kept pressing on, And he wanted others to have this same attitude. So he writes in verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Have this attitude. Have this focus. He is saying those who are mature will think the same way about what what really matters in life. Those who who are mature in their thinking spiritually will think this way about the Christian life. So he's encouraging the Philippians to have the same desire for spiritual growth, the same passion for spiritual growth. He is saying, pursue the same goal. Paul is humbly holding himself up as an example to be followed. He will state that specifically down in verse 17. Following human examples that are exemplary is commended in the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 holds up several human examples who modeled a life of faith, men and women of faith. And then he says this, coming off of that list, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the reference to the cloud of witnesses... In verse 1 is a reference to to men and women who have left an example for us to follow. So Paul penned these words here in Philippians 3 to be a challenging example to, to whoever read them. And then he says this in verse 15. This has always been so fascinating to me. He says, 
And if in anything you think otherwise, do you think that's a possibility? Do you think there are Christians who won't think this way, the way Paul has been describing? Do you think there are, there are Christians who, who won't think with this kind of passion, this kind of zeal, this kind of drive? No doubt. There are lots of Christians, sadly, who don't have this kind of single-mindedness, this kind of fervency, this kind of passion. They're distracted, self-satisfied, apathetic, complacent. They think you take this stuff too seriously. I've had people say that to me more than once. Brian, loosen up. Don't take all this stuff so seriously. So what, what do you do about people like that? We're talking about people in the body of Christ, people in the church. How, how, what do you do? Now, this is going to sound like a cliche, but it's exactly what Paul says here. You just have to leave them to the Lord. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 15. He says this. He says, if in anything you think otherwise, that is, if you don't think this way, if this isn't your focus, then God will reveal even this to you. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. Listen, if you don't have this mindset, this focus, then God is going to have to reveal the importance of this to you. I, I, I don't know what else to do. I, I can't say any more than I've said. That's basically what Paul is relating here. Lord, I've poured out my heart in this passage to show them how we ought to be living the Christian life, so now it's up to you to cause your people to see the extreme importance of pursuing sanctification wholeheartedly in this way. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 15. And then he wraps it up in verse 16 with this. Nevertheless, there will be, in other words, there, there are going to be those who think differently. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained or arrived, let us walk by the same rule. Now what does this say? Well, it's a call for consistency. Paul is saying, listen, to the degree that we've attained, or that is uh, the things that have helped us by God's grace uh, arrive at where we're at, let's just keep doing those things. It's a call for consistency. Stay in line. Keep moving. Don't wander. Don't get sidetracked. Don't look at other Christians who are not pursuing wholeheartedly and fall in with them. No. Spiritual growth isn't accomplished through hit and miss effort. You've got to stay in line. This reminds me of that tremendous story in John 21 after the resurrection. You probably know this story. Jesus is walking with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And basically Jesus says to Peter, you know what, Peter? When you get older, you're going to die for me. You're going to die. You're going to die a martyr's death. You used to go wherever you wanted to go, but you're going to be, you know, you're going to be taken by the hand and led to where you don't want to go. That is, you're going to be crucified. And Peter thought, wow, that's the way it's going to end for me. What about John? John's following behind. He's a little ways behind. So Jesus says, or Peter says to Jesus, well, Lord, what about him? If this is your plan for me, I'm going to die a martyr's death. What about him? And you remember what Jesus said. He said, what is it to you if I will that he remains until I come back? What if my plan for him is to stay alive all the way till I come back? What is that to you? You follow me. In other words, don't worry about my plan for him. You worry about my plan for you, and you stay in line, Peter, and you keep following. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't get sidetracked. He is addressing these words to those who have this passion, this drive, and he is exhorting them not to get discouraged by those who aren't in the pursuit, but to keep moving in their own race. 
Don't look around and say, well, others aren't taking this as seriously as I think we ought to be taking it. Maybe I shouldn't take it. No, Paul says, just keep moving ahead. It's very easy to get discouraged and back off the cutting edge when you see other Christians who are distracted, self-satisfied, apathetic, or complacent. So Paul exhorts us not to do that. He basically says, hang in there. Keep moving ahead. Stay consistent in your spiritual disciplines because by God's grace, that's what has given you the progress that's in your life, the development, the growth that's in your life. So just keep doing it. What a challenging passage of Scripture. What an encouraging passage of Scripture. And my challenge to you and to me as we close our look at this passage is simply this. Look at the way you live the Christian life and compare it to the way Paul describes the way he lived the Christian life and see if there's a match. Now, understand, we're not talking about vocation. I'm not saying here what you need to do. If you really want to be like this passage, you need to quit your job and you need to go to so and so, such and such a place and be a missionary. Don't think vocationally. God may have called you to be a pastor. God may have called you to be a missionary. God may have called you to be in, in other roles, whatever. We're not talking vocation. We're talking about whatever God has called you to do in life, that this is who you are. That this is who you are. Is this your life? Is this your focus? Is this your pursuit? Let's pray as we close. Father, this passage is so challenging to us. It's so encouraging to us and so motivating to us. And help us to see that what Paul is describing here is really the normal Christian life. So whether someone is a student or someone is a businessman or someone is a homemaker or someone is just fill in the blank, whatever, whatever role or vocation you call us to, is not the focus of this passage. Because we all have different lots in life. We all have different roles in life. But regardless of that, we have been called to live the Christian life this way, with this kind of passion, this kind of pursuit, this kind of aim, this kind of focus. And so, Father, we pray that if this is not our focus, this is not our passion, that you would change us this day and that when we leave here, this would be our passion. And if by your grace this is our passion, we pray that you would strengthen us to continue to be motivated, to continue by your grace to keep moving ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.